Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. What leaders are really tasked with doing going forward is saying, how do I paint a picture of a story that ex- that will exist in the future so that people have something to go forward towards? And how do I paint that vision in a vivid enough way so that people can imagine themselves in it? That is a challenge. And that's why I think history is so valuable is we get lessons on how those stories were painted. And when we want to look forward and think about painting a vision, a story for tomorrow about what this innovation might look like and what this world might look like, well, we've got entire human recorded history of stories of how that was done before. We can look to those for guidance on how we go forward in the future. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't heard my recent conversations on the podcast with the founder of Rational Games, Dr. Mark Young, and with Dan Belkowski, founder of Product Tranquility, then do go listen in. But before you go there, stay here and listen to today's podcast conversation. I'm really excited today to have on the InnovaBuzz podcast as my guest, Jason Voyevich. He's the author of Marketer-in-Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea. In a career that spans more than 25 years, Jason has launched hundreds of new products, everything from medical devices to virtual healthcare systems to non-dairy consumer cheese to next-generation alternatives to the dreaded cone of shame for pets to sex aids for cows. Really, he says. Jason's formal training in marketing and in leadership and management has been invaluable, but he credits his true success to growing up in a family of artists, immigrants and entrepreneurs. They taught him how to carefully observe the world, see patterns before others notice them, and use those insights to create new innovations. Now, where does this interesting book fit in? Well, Jason's favourite way to observe the world is through history. He believes the people from the past have plenty to teach us about the challenges and the opportunities we all face today. In our conversation, Jason talked to me about how stories are often more powerful than facts. We talked about how reimagining history as a set of possible outcomes Through doing that, we can develop the skills to view the future in that same way. 
and he shared an example of over-reliance on technology that led to undermined trust. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Jason Vojevic. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast today from Minneapolis in Minnesota, the USA, Jason Vojevic, who's a fractional chief marketing officer, as well as author of Marketer-in-Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Jason. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest. I thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited for the conversation. Now, uh, we were just having a conversation before we started recording about your book and how it's a really fascinating look at the history of all the U.S. presidents up to the present incumbent. And what you say in the book is that we can't predict the future from studying the past, but if we study it with the right lens, we can stop stepping into the same hole. So. <laughs> I kind of like that one. But the really fascinating time is, uh, or the fascinating aspect is that you relate or you look at each president not as the commander-in-chief, but as the marketer-in-chief of selling that idea, that American idea, and also of drawing lessons from that in marketing in business. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that some more. Before we do that, though, what's the impact you're making in the world today, Jason? What I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do as a as a professional, is help teach people to be curious. That's uh, you know, there I am curious about everything without exception, and I found that as a leader and as an innovator, uh, that helps me uh, not only with empathy on you know what other people might be thinking but it helps me draw those kind of connections between this over here and that over there and this thing that's going on in this person's life versus that's going in in someone else's life that the ability to draw those kind of connections is where real innovation comes from and if you're not curious or you don't cultivate that personality trait it's very difficult in my mind to be innovative and to really be innovative. So in my work, I want to teach people to be kind of fascinated and interested in everything, not just the things they happen to be interested in now. Mm. So that's what I write in my books and what I do as a professional. Mostly when it comes right down to it, I'm trying to help people be curious. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And you, you touched on the idea of connecting the dots between things that may seem disparate, so that the curi that curiosity has to extend, doesn't it, to areas where perhaps we're not that passionate about. But if, um, if I mean, for me, it's kind of inbred. I look at things and I'm always asking either, why does it do it that way? Or what if that was different? And, and then unconsciously, you're almost looking for connecting that to something you know. And whether it's... An, I find that when you contrast that with something you know, that that's where you stretch the boundaries and innovation starts to happen or innovative ideas start to bubble up. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Jürgen. Uh, 
One of the stories I love to tell from you know, my innovation history, I've launched hundreds of products. That's part, that's mostly what I do for a living. That's how, that's yeah. why people pay me to do what I do. Uh, no one, the, being an author is not a good, it's a good way to go broke. It's not a good way to make <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, but one of the, one of the most interesting things is, uh, I was, uh, on a team that helped develop a bovine reproduction product. And, uh, here's the thing. It's what was interesting about it is how, you know, how dairy cows need to, you know, they're in the dairy cow business having the animal be pregnant and calving basically all the time is how that business model works. So in other words, they need to be pregnant all the time. Well, how do you make sure that they're pregnant all the time? Well, you need to make sure that when that animal is in estrus, meaning in heat, that they are either find a bull at that moment or uh, they are artificially inseminated. Most people who are listening to this who run a dairy farm are familiar with it will understand that 99% of that is artificial insemination now. Well, here's the trick. How do you know when the animal's in estrus? And what was interesting is the ranch hands understood when the animal's in estrus because female cows will mount each other. It's just one of those odd behaviors that you wouldn't know what it meant unless you were one of those and you said, hey, that animal's in heat. And they would come by and artificially inseminate it. Well, the I, kind of the creative idea that we worked on was essentially a scratch-off lotto ticket that would get adhered to the back of the cow. So what would happen? You know how a scratch-off lotto ticket works, right? You scratch mm -hmm. it off of the coin, and underneath is the winning number, whatever it is, or at least you hope it's the winning number. Well, under this one, you put a highly reflective fluorescent surface under there. So when you'd scratch it off, well, you'd get a highly reflective surface and you could look out on a, a complete ocean of dairy cows and know exactly which ones were ready to be inseminated because the act of rubbing off with the coin was handled by another female cow. <laughs> so what it. you had to understand is you had to understand how a lotto ticket worked and you had to be able to connect those dots. You also had to understand enough about adhesives to understand what was going to stick to the back end of a dirty cow. Because cows, dairy cows are not like they, like they look in a, you know, one of those uh, idyllic farm scenes. They are dirty. Mm. So would it stick and would it stay on during multiple mountings to expose enough of that fluorescent area to be seen by a ranch hand on a horse? And that's essentially the idea. Instead of ranch hands guessing, it was now you could just take a look in any, any like idiot you could tell. Yeah. Indicator, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So think of all the dots you needed to connect for something like that. You needed to have empathy, be curious about, hey, Jurgen, how do you know that that cow's in estrus and that one's not? So you had to, you had to talk with them. You had to be curious about that. You needed to figure out, huh, well, I'm trying to rub something together and make something happen. Well, it's kind of like a lottery ticket. And then you also had to be interested in adhesives and glues. Well, if you're not a curious person, how do you put those three dots together? I don't know how you do it. Mm. Yeah, that's a really fascinating story that highlights highlights innovation by looking outside of that that's area right. and connecting a lot of dots. Yeah, and I've learned 
quite a bit about uh, bovine behavior. And yeah, now now you know something that maybe you wish you hadn't. <laughs> uh, it's, but yeah, that's uh, uh, you know, it's and what does it really turn into? What does the innovation really mean? Well, that innovation turns into real money for a dairy farmer. You know, if you miss an estrus cycle, the farmers and the ranchers we worked with uh, could calculate it to the day on how much money they were losing per day to miss a cycle. You know, these things really turn into quantitative outcomes. And that's those are the things that I find drive a lot of innovation is clear goals, connect the dots. And, you know, really about kind of because you have to change the behavior. That's the core of innovation, right? You it's not just about creating the idea. You got to get people to adopt it. And if you're not talking with the people in advance, you're not curious, you don't really understand what makes them tick, they're probably not going to adopt the innovation or they might not. Uh, you really got to understand them. Hmm. All right. Well, let's switch gears and, and turn to history and U.S. presidents. And uh, it's fascinating. You kind of reframed the, and you talked about every single president in the book, uh, and you reframed their story to basically look at them from the lens of being the marketer in chief, so selling the idea and telling stories. So there's a couple there that I think uh, are really interesting to focus on from the point of view of you say that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but if we don't learn from it, we fall into the same holes. But the other side of that is, um, and, and you certainly did this in the book, is looking at it, looking at the same set of facts as they're documented. So, I mean, we, we can only go by what's documented and information that's available now on um, people that are long gone. But coming up with different stories to explain it, and then you, you relate that to modern business marketing and scenario planning. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, so I wanted to start with James Madison, mm. the president around about uh, the early 1800s and somebody that I certainly wasn't that familiar with in a period of US history that I wasn't familiar with as a non-US person and we were talking earlier that um, I did learn a little bit of US history in, in my early high school years and took an interest in it but certainly not to the depth that you probably would in, in the US. Um, so James Madison, early 1800s, one of the um, big events of that time was the 1812 war and tell us a little bit about how you see his legacy what some of the lessons were you, you documented around investigating him? I think uh, how I would phrase it, just to give your listeners a little bit of context on the War of 1812 in the United States, sometimes us in the, us on the, in the States call that the Second War of American Independence. It was fought against the uh, Great Britain uh, in, in and around about 1812. They never just last one year, but uh, that's when it started. And the, there are a lot of things that led up to it, but essentially the backstory is really simple. If you were in the United States in the early part after the Revolutionary War, there wasn't yet a United States of America. It was kind of the United States of America. And what I mean by that, and the emphasis on the different words is intentional, mm -hmm. 
most people saw themselves as a New Yorker or Virginian or Georgian. So what state you belong to was your, the first part of your identity. The second might be your city. The third might be the church you belong to. And then seventh, eighth, or ninth, or tenth, or maybe not even on your list, was that you were an American. That just wasn't how people thought at that time. And the War of 1812 was the first war fought as a unified country against a foreign adversary. And what was interesting about how James Madison took the facts of the war and created a narrative with like, hey, we beat the British again as a country. We have this military hero called Andrew Jackson, and he beat the British in New Orleans. And we had this diplomat, John Quincy Adams, who negotiated this great treaty for us, and all of these things. He took that group of facts, limited though they were, and created essentially a unified national identity. It was the first time when Americans started to think of themselves as Americans. But when you take a look at, yeah, that was a great bit of storytelling on James Madison's part, but as we all, you know, as a student of history knows, that's a tiny sliver of what happened. And frankly, uh, the United States really didn't perform well in that conflict at all. Uh, performed horrifically badly on a number of military fronts. It really didn't perform well and essentially outlasted the British again. So why was it that James Madison was able to take that just that chunk of facts and create this narrative? Well, he looked at the same situation that later historians did. I mean, the United States government had to flee the White House and flee the Capitol because the British burned it down. So when you think about how how do you win when someone takes over your capital and burns it down? That's not a win. That's not a win in anybody's book. Uh, but essentially, he crafted a story out of facts he selected. And you see businesses do this all the time, Jurgen. They take a look at what happened in the past. Pick a, How many leaders have you talked to that have looked back at the past year, said, boy, we kind of had a crappy year? Hmm. What can we pick as the is the lodestones for this great year? And how can we tell a story about what happened last year that will inspire people to go forward? That's classic. Everyone, all leaders do that. And this is just a great example of looking back, picking out a set of facts and creating a narrative. And frankly, the British did it. The Canadians did it. And the native, the indigenous peoples of the United States in that area did it as well. They, all, they each took that same conflict, a different set of facts, and created their own narrative with it. So essentially, we had four stories come out of that with four different purposes for four different audiences that were all true and all not true at the same time. Really fascinating case study. Yeah, yeah. And what, what it uh, highlighted for me... I mean, there's this um, concept in NLP that says the map is not the territory. And, and part of that is around um, having empathy for other people. So we all, we all have the same experience of a particular situation. Um, and, and yet we don't because we're being bombarded by so much information that the brain would just shut down the body if we were to process it all. So what we do is distort, we delete certain information that we don't regard as 
important to us and we generalize some things. So we throw stuff together and generalize it so that we don't have to process so many bits of information. That's how our brain, the computer works. And of course, ultimately, we build an internal story out of that and that constructs our memories, that builds our attitudes, our values and beliefs. And this is this story that you told in that is a really strong uh, example of how that was then used to advantage. I mean, it, it, some of that happens naturally, unconsciously with everyone, but then, you know, some people use it in a manipulative way. And I think the politicians are really good for using it in a manipulative way, but it does highlight that this happens everywhere. Right. I think you brought up a really good point, Jurgen, about how we naturally do that. Humans are too limited to accept all possible points of view with all inputs all the time. Our brains don't work that way. Uh, our brains create pathways and structures that help us uh, make sense of things. And in that, you have to ignore some things. And what I see the role of leaders, and you brought up politicians are good at this, good leaders are good at this, at helping nudge that process along, uh, where in the early days of the War of 1812, it's still kind of a chaotic environment and people didn't really know which facts were going to be important. What things should they be remembering and thinking about? It was James Madison's skill of helping tell people what is important, what things to focus on and let the memories crystallize around those things and not ignoring, you know, not ignoring other things, not telling people that those other things didn't happen. They just focus on them less. And over time, you get this vision that the United States won the War of 1812, which from a military perspective is just about hogwash. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the other thing it raises in my mind, I mean, there's this concept of propaganda in um, politics particularly, and that has a very negative connotation. Where, where does, I mean, where does the, um, Where's the boundary, I guess, between crafting a story that motivates people and gets them on board to this idea that we're selling versus um, the manipulation part where I think that, that's what propaganda usually is seen as? Yeah, it's interesting that before World War II, propaganda did not have a negative connotation. Hmm. And that's that's something really important for... I think modern listeners to hear is that, you know, well into the kind of the Chinese, the Indian, uh, you read Arab history, African history, Roman history, uh, you know, classical European history, you know, Mesoamerican history, whatever you want to look at, each of them did that for their own ends to, you know, kind of create a story and help guide society and their public in a way that they wanted them to. The Chinese are masters of this, mm. you know, thinking about harmonious society and how they guide the, you know, use their history to help guide the society in a direction that they that they see best. So you're the point being that, OK, well, what's the difference between let's say propaganda is the neutral term and, you know, kind of the good guiding towards a better end and manipulative guiding towards more of a negative end. That's in the eye of the beholder. And I don't mean to be a complete relativist on that. There are ends of the spectrum that are absolutely kind of good and evil. There's no question about that. But most of the world is not strictly good and evil. 
it's a muddy, messy middle that is uh, that can be debated uh, over time. And you know, I think the skill of a leader is in not only crafting that story, but that's why I actually disagree with people who say, "Well, you know, you shouldn't really. It, it should just be the politicians' policies that you focus on and what they stand for." No, you need to know what kind of a person they are because their ability to influence what facts you believe and kind of where where things go is a moral question and an ethical question. So I think you absolutely need to know what kind of a moral character the person has. That's just as important as, as policy specifics and details. You need to have both things for exactly the point you just brought up. Yeah, and the other thing you talk about quite a lot in the book um, is vision. Mm -hmm. and And you point out that Probably in recent times, there's been this lack of forward vision. It's been more or less looking back and saying, yeah, we're going to make things better. So comparing to what is now or what has been before, um, which isn't really a future vision. And of course, selling a future vision does involve storytelling and does involve painting a picture, if you like, of what does that vision look like and how, do, how does that fit with our attitudes, our values, our beliefs. And, and enable people then in politics to make that judgment. Is that aligned with my values and my beliefs? And, and, you know, do I buy into that story? Do I vote for that person? So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that whole idea of painting of future vision and, and how that relates to leadership in business, of course. I think that, uh, one of the topics I bring up in the book is that the leadership, the challenge of vision, is very different depending on where the, you know, where the United States was at different parts in its life cycle. And frankly, different businesses in different stages in their life cycle. For instance, the challenge faced from a leadership and vision perspective with a startup is very different than the challenge faced with an established organization. Think of the difference in communication style and challenge that Steve Jobs had in announcing the first Macintosh to Steve Jobs announcing the iPhone or Tim Cook announcing the iPhone 13. These are really different challenges. So what we mean by vision at each one of those is a very different thing. And I think that's where leaders struggle sometimes is they struggle to know what, where am I starting from? Am I starting at you know, the startup where I don't have a lot of history to build on. I'm just, I have to create a vision a lot on faith and risk-taking and experimentation. Or am I an organization at the top of my game? And I need to make sure to keep the organization hungry and moving forward. These are really different communication challenges. They're different leadership challenges. So I think the first thing before you start talking about vision you have to make sure to be introspective enough to understand where are we at? Where are we coming from? Where are the people and the stakeholders around me coming from? Where's the market at right now? And now how do I paint that uh, forward vision? So maybe a, a, a roundabout answer to the question is it depends. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things depend. Um... <laughs> Yeah, the the idea of vision um, 
is a fascinating one and, and combined with the storytelling because certainly if you take that analogy, Steve Jobs with the Macintosh, um, you know, there, there were a few a few um, personal computers around in those days, but it certainly wasn't something that most people would have been aware of. So his vision obviously was this personal computer that is available to everyone, that's easy to use. It's not um, this threat of perhaps new technology. It's something that everyone can learn and um, you know makes accessible a whole new world. So that that was probably the vision at the time, but it was something very difficult to, it's easy to imagine now in hindsight, but at the time, probably something very difficult for most people to imagine. So he had to tell this story to help people imagine that, that something that wasn't there. I think you bring up a really interesting point about how you craft a story about what happened in the past is very similar to the process of crafting a story about what will happen in the future. They're really the same process because our brains work the same way. Uh, there's an old saying that there's no difference between reality and what you vividly imagine. Hmm. It's why people think dreams are real because your brain doesn't really know the difference uh, between those two things and how you can convince yourself of things that don't exist. Our memories work this way that you can so vividly remember something that wasn't true. And we've all had that experience, right? Where we thought we remembered what our grade school looked like and we went back and we thought, that doesn't look like that at all. It's just it's something you constructed in your mind. What leaders are really tasked with doing going forward is saying, how do I paint a picture of a story that, ex that will exist in the future? so that people have something to go forward towards? And how do I paint that vision in a vivid enough way so that people can imagine themselves in it? That's a, that is a challenge. And that's why I think history is so valuable, is we get lessons on how those stories were painted. And when we want to look forward and think about painting a vision, a story for tomorrow about what this innovation might look like and what this world might look like, well, we've got entire human recorded history of stories of how that was done before. We can look to those for guidance on how we go forward in the future. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting way. I mean, for me, it made so concrete the idea of, you know, what can we actually learn from history in the sense of joining the dots outside the box, what we were talking about before. So right. not just not just, hey, we've had a leader like this before that's tried something like that, so, you know, and that didn't work out, so why is this going to work out? Or, you know, this is, this is what inspired everybody to do something in the past, um, if we reflect back on, on a previous leader. So um, why doesn't today's leader do that as well? So in political sense, but taking those lessons outside and into the business world, that, that's really powerful. One of the other ones that um, I was really fascinated by and it, it rang a lot of bells with me was the story of Dwight Eisenhower. So Dwight Eisenhower was the president. Uh, I think he was the first post-war, post-Second World War president, right? That's correct. Uh, yeah. yeah. Harry Truman was president uh, during the very end of World War II with the United States and Japan. 
Uh, but yeah, Dwight Eisenhower was the first president elected after the war was over. Okay, and and the story you you relate the story of the U two spy plane, and and that rang a bell with me because I was a very young child when that happened, and it was kind of big news at the time. But looking at it through your lens is really interesting. It it um it brought up another point for me that connected the dots back to what I do on a day-to-day basis. So we talk about making marketing human again and focusing on building relationships and building trust. And and one of the things that came out of the way you related the story of the U2 incident was that Eisenhower's, first of all, you know, the decision-making on limited info, but the over-reliance on the technology. They had this fabulous technology and they basically just said you know that that's it the technology is going to do everything for us and that over-reliance on the technology when something went wrong um, really undermined trust in a huge way that that almost brought us to the brink of uh, another world war so yeah tell us a little bit about that story and and those lessons well this is the francis gary powers story so some of your readers uh, or listeners uh, may remember that some of you may have been alive during that uh but Many, it's it's a popular story in the United States and the Soviet Union, lots of places around the world. Essentially, the bottom line was this. Uh, we're in the midst of the Cold War, and one of the biggest issues is uh, the lack of information and the lack of communication about what was the readiness of, uh, you know, what was the real threat level? How quickly could the United States or the Soviet Union mobilize a military force, and would you get caught by surprise? So essentially what Eisenhower was tasked with is figuring out how can we get that early warning? How could we know, how could we use, you know, in his words, how could we use technology to get early warning? So uh, essentially the U-2 spy plane is still in operation, by the way. Hmm. Uh, What's special about the U-2, not only is it a weird looking airplane, (laughs) uh, looks like a throwback to the 1950s, which it absolutely is. Uh, but what's interesting about it uh, is how high it can fly. That's the real, the real big difference between it and pretty much everything else. It doesn't fly that fast. It has no armaments. It can't shoot anything down, but it can fly. At the time, it could fly outside the range of Soviet ground-to-air missiles, and it could fly above uh, any current fighter jet. So essentially, this plane could fly high enough to get over the Soviet Union and take a 600-mile radius image in any direction uh, that it flew. So with one flight, you can cover a lot of ground. Hmm. And the issue with kind of the technology side is, okay, well, that would solve the problem. Well, you don't have to be a student of history to know what happened next. Do you think the Soviet Union enjoyed having a plane fly over with cameras on it that they could see with radar? They could absolutely see it, but they couldn't do anything about it. What do you think happened next? It's, it, you know, they tried to shoot missiles at it and, you know, put fighter jets up there. They couldn't get it down. So it flew a few times. Well, you could, there are two ways to kind of get this thing down. You could either develop a new fighter that can fly higher, or you can develop a new missile that can go higher. What do you think is the easier thing to do? Well, develop a new missile. Uh, long story short, they shot the thing down. It crashed. And they got Francis Gary Powers. He survived the crash. Uh, you know, he long story. Pilot, right? He was the pilot. Hmm. Long story short, 
uh, now the United States and uh, Khrushchev and uh, the premier, Soviet premier at the time, Nikita Khrushchev, and Dwight Eisenhower were in a little bit of a pickle. Uh, what do you say? And it was this funny situation, you know, funny, not ha-ha funny, but funny in retrospect, on what do you do when you get your hand, your, they catch you with your hand in the cookie jar. Hmm. And this kind of tit-for-tat sort of trying to say it was a weather plane and trying to, you know, trying to create all kinds of excuses. The problem was that Nikita Khrushchev had Francis Gary Powers sitting right there. They knew exactly what the whole story was. But it was a real embarrassment to the president, and it really hurt Eisenhower's ability to have that trust, not just with the Soviet Union, it wasn't just with them. I remember my dad talking with me about that story, and he said, that's the first time I didn't trust the president anymore. Hmm. That he lied to us. He basically said that we didn't have that, that that, was, that didn't happen, and Nikita Khrushchev released the photos and said, yeah, he did. And that trust in being able to level with people is really the foundation of being able to tell that story and be able to lead from kind of a, that's the human part of that, that, you know, what are the other ways to get that kind of early warning? Well, what did the Soviets do? They used spies hmm. and they used human intelligence largely uh, to get, you know, to get that kind of information, lots of well-documented incidents. And it was a very different kind of approach, kind of an American focus on technology and more of an Eastern Soviet focus on human intelligence. Just just, just different philosophic approaches to that uh, that are really fascinating to read in retrospect. Hmm. So what, what are some of the lessons out of that that you think are relevant in the business world? I think the biggest thing when people think about, you brought something up earlier about reading history, and this is the same thing when I would talk with leaders about looking back and looking at, looking at history, and they'll say something to the effect that you did. You said, well, this other person tried that and it didn't work. Hmm. And here's the thing, that's the problem with our reading of history as well. And the problem is that when we go back in history, because history is, uh, yeah, there are different different facts you can emphasize or de-emphasize, you can tell different stories, but essentially history is a study of what happened, not what we wish had happened. Hmm. So there is kind of a linear path through history. You know, that's, that's just how it is. Well, linear path doesn't mean inevitability at each different decision point. So what people forget is that history could have turned out lots of different ways based on different decisions people made. And so when we go forward, what we tend to do is we tend to create this, we tend to project that story, this line of reasoning into the future. And we think, okay, well, I'm going to create this vision of where I want to steer this into the future. And that's really the only place it could go because I'm going to create this future and then we're going to move forward in a linear way. Well, that's ridiculous. And any leader knows that, mm. but... It's the problem that when we learn, when we think we are learning from history, we shouldn't be learning inevitability. We should be learning kind of the meta level. What were the stories, the techniques, the, what were the themes at play? And a lot less about the specific things that happened. All those are, those are valuable facts. They help give us context. There's so many times where things could have gone differently. 
that we don't really do scenario planning. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of how messed up this is just in our own pop culture. Do you remember ever, uh, Jurgen, did you watch uh, that new, the, the latest Avengers movie? The Marvel Avengers movie. Most people have seen that. Did you see that one? No, I haven't, the... I haven't seen that one, no. Well, a lot of your listeners might have seen it. I'll give yeah. you the, the 50,000 <laughs> foot view. The Incredible Hulk, this, this guy, you, you heard of that big green yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah. Okay. He's meeting with this, the, the character is the ancient one, and she is keeper of this, this uh, time stone that everybody needs. The, the story, the details are not important, okay? But they describe the timeline, and there's kind of a messed up timeline, kind of a common movie trope, you know, that something happened and we need to go back in time. This mm -hmm. is kind of the Superman 2 kind of thing, mm -hmm. if I recall. Superman did this where he, he flew around the world and spun it backwards so he could turn back time and change something that happened. Uh, basically, how the Ancient One described the timeline is that, hey, there's one line and it's this one timeline thread. And when something goes wrong, it creates these branching timelines. But if we put things right, everything goes back to the one true timeline that we all agree on. Well, that's complete BS, mm -hmm. frankly. It's a bad way to think about the you know, a timeline. What's more useful is at any given moment of time, there are infinite possibilities of what could happen next. Some are more likely than others. And that's really the domain of scenario planning. And what I wish leaders would use history for is to imagine different scenarios that could happen because that's what helps us plan for the future. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really highlighted something I was going to touch on next. And that's, you know, you, you said different scenarios. And if you look back at some of the stories and some of the things that we've been talking about, particularly that 1812 war and the narratives there. Um, you mentioned, you know, there were different narratives for the Canadians, for the native population, for the uh, British, and, that, and, and of course, um, the Madison administration, and that they all had their own narratives, and that they were very different. So if you kind of plot those on a timeline, that, that will be a completely different timeline, and you think, well, you know, all of the futures are going to be going in different directions, and yet we know that the future went the way it was, the way it happened. Uh, but the stories that people tell, and and also you know the facts that we we then register or we don't delete and distort subsequent to that are quite different depending on where we're coming from, and that's that's a, a good way to take scenario planning going forward the other thing i just wanted to highlight that there are techniques again in, in nlp where you can actually take people back to usually you do this for a traumatic experience and and you know you imagine they imagine their timeline you guide them through this where they imagine their timeline and then you essentially get them to retell a story in a, just a slightly different way. And all of a sudden, that same experience is, is no longer as traumatic. I mean, they've got to, they've got to see it as, as an observer. So they've got to be far enough removed from it so that they don't relive the experience. But that's, that's certainly that there are techniques where you can change 
your perception of past events and then in terms of scenario planning that that's a really great technique to look at okay what you know what's today's events what's today's environment what's today's circumstances and how can we look at those in different ways that that then open up different future possibilities I think that's a really key way, you know, a lot of people get struggle with getting started with scenario planning. They think about, well, how am I supposed to tell what the future is going to be? And very often they come out with really outlandish, uh, you know, scenarios about asteroid impacts and we're taken over by aliens and all, all manner of different things. And while those can be interesting and kind of instructive in some ways, those don't tend to be very likely uh, in any, you know, what's the chance of an asteroid impact uh, on Earth that is planet altering? Well, that's a trick question. The answer is 100%. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And it doesn't really help your one-year business planning to think about things like that. So your technique is, what I like about your technique is a way to get started with scenario planning is simply to imagine the present from different perspectives uh, with slightly different characteristics and then project each of those forward a year or three years and see what happens then. And that could be a really good place to start. Here's a for instance. When you talked about, we already talked about James Madison in the United States and how it projected its future forward as a unified country. Well, we didn't talk about the Canadians who really didn't have a unified national identity either. Hmm. But the War of 1812 crystallized their national identity because they beat the crap out of the Americans. Uh, in, every, in pretty much every encounter, the Canadians' smaller force pushed them back. And that helped kind of, at the very beginning, build a sense of Canadian identity that was separate from the United States identity. And at that time, had that war gone differently, had the Canadians not pushed the United States back, had they followed Thomas Jefferson's advice and just walked into Canada and took over, that's something he said, uh, had that succeeded, uh, it's very likely that uh, Ontario, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, all of, you know, all of the Canadian provinces would be part of the United States today. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to kind of craft that separateness that was important. So there's just little different interpretations of that story, project them forward, and you start to say, oh, they might diverge onto different paths. And then all of a sudden you get, it's a way for you to generate your four, eight, six different scenarios that then you can do something with strategically. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that uh, is really highlights how you might do that scenario planning and of course one of the things you talked earlier about um the was it the latest avengers movie i was thinking as as you were describing that there's there's lots of these um movies some of them are historical movies and i always wonder where you know particularly the ones that go for 10 10 episode series or something you start off in episode one and there's the the good guys and the bad guys and there's an allegiance on the side of the good guys where a bunch of different people get together and they've got different interests but they've got a common kind of cause and so they get together and similarly the bad guys and then over that 
10 episodes or whatever it is, allegiances shift all the time. And it's always this fluid thing. It's like like you said earlier about the timeline. It's it's not a linear progression, and it's it, it's always fascinating to me to look at those um, series from the point of view of you know what's motivating those people to you know particularly the ones that kind of deviate from they start off in this camp and then they suddenly they're in the opposite camp that they've been fighting with. And, um, you know, what, what motivates those to kind of all of a sudden shift allegiances? Because, you know, have they changed values? Have they changed their attitudes and beliefs? Probably not. Um, maybe there's been a slight shift, but there's, you know, and this happens in real life. I mean, it, you know, not, perhaps not that dramatically, but that's, so there's never what is today is going to be that linear path forward. I think what's interesting, Jurgen, to build on that a little bit is, you know, one technique of scenario planning is what we talked about, where, hey, take the present, whatever the present is, look at it from different perspectives, and then project those forward. Good way to start. Another good way to start is, and why storytelling is so important, is that storytelling has different story arcs have different centers of gravity. You know, the hero's journey is one. There are other story arcs that people tend to kind of internalize and tend to make sense to them in their culture. Certain things that have happened in the past about how things were handled, they tend to be kind of archetypal stories. And why we like them is they tend to resonate with us in some way. So how does that relate to kind of a, a business context? Well, when you're evaluating different scenarios, it's important to think about, yeah, well, anything could happen, of course, but what's more likely to happen than not? And storylines and story arcs tend to be a good way to say, okay, we look like we have the beginning of a hero's journey here. This kind of story arc is happening. Well, we can project that story arc out in terms of the different pivot points that may happen in the future and get a more likely set of scenarios than if we were to ignore that kind of storyline. So stories have this way of help giving us a little glimpse into the future and a path that is more likely because we as human beings, whether or not the facts line up with it, will shove the facts into that storyline because that's what we do. Yeah. So I've always found stories and that's why I find history so valuable. It's, a, it's uh, basically it's millions and millions of true stories. And if you see the patterns, you can start to see what do human beings gravitate towards. And that helps you in future scenario planning. It's not perfect, but it certainly gives you a better likely set of scenarios to plan for than uh, just assuming, well, anything could happen at any time. Well, as a business person, that's not very likely. That doesn't, that doesn't help you much. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I guess what you're saying is, there are certain frameworks that we can use and build around in terms of thinking about different possible outcomes for the future. And I was always fascinated in my corporate days. I was on, on a business planning team and we used to have this annual trip around our region. So I was sort of responsible for sort of this part of the world, geographical region they called the Pacific and we'd travel around from country to country and and people would present to us their business plan and I was always fascinated that you know 
everything was a hockey stick. Like, yes, you know, we're here, but it's going to grow like this. There's this so a hockey stick, you know, it's shaped, <laughs> shaped, everything's going up at a diagonal, like 45% or more gradient. And I always challenged it and said, well, what's, what's going to contribute to that? And what if? I, what if was always my favourite question because I'd play this devil's advocate of what if that event didn't happen? What if you didn't sell this to this big company that, that predicates that? Now, how does that graph look? And, okay, well, what's the likelihood of that happening, of selling or not selling and so on? So do you see any lessons in like the, the history you've studied and, and in the book particularly that, that can relate back to that kind of situation in, in the business world? Yeah, I think the, the, important, the important lesson to pull out of that is you need to plan for multiple possible futures, not just the one you want. Hmm. And that's common in uh, startup companies to see the hockey stick graph. I've seen it in dozens of times myself. It's it's always amusing when you see it. You know you're going to get to that slide in the deck at some point. It's just a matter of where you see it. Uh, but again, being able to look at it in terms of how do you win in multiple likely scenarios? And if you think about, you know, okay, here are the four most likely scenarios, what the future might look like. How do I make sure that I set my company up to win in each of those? What alliances do I need today? What products do I need to be developing today? What talent do I need today in order not just to win in, hey, this year plus 10%, that's where we'll be at the end of next year. Hmm. You know, how do I win if a number of different things happens so that, like, yeah, it's a little bit of a portfolio style approach. I think the biggest lessons we can often learn in that, not just from storytelling, but you know, how a financial analyst might work. Uh, it's funny that when I talk with financial folks, uh, they when they manage investment portfolios, they're always looking at it with an eye towards, well, I, I can't tell exactly what the future is going to be, so I have a well-balanced portfolio, uh, so that if one goes up, one goes down, and I'm trying to kind of maximize risk and return, all those sort of optimizing things, Yet, when I talk with CFOs in organizations, they're only comfortable with kind of one linear path on a month-to-month -month spreadsheet. It's just, it's bizarre that they're not connecting the dots between how they manage a financial portfolio and how you manage a strategic portfolio. And that's what I think some of the best leaders in, uh, you know, United States history did as well. They took a look at, you know, how do we set up a scenario in which we place multiple bets and we are, you know, we're involved in a lot of different things that you can succeed in so many different aspects uh, of, you know, what the future might hold. Some were better at that than others, uh, but they're all, they all have to take multiple bets. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And um, looking at, I mean, looking at an investment portfolio it, it's that's the traditional advice isn't it diversify right. don't be don't put all your eggs in one basket um, because if something goes wrong with that basket then you're in trouble and the 
same advice could be applied to planning in a business sense, developing new products or um, investing in a particular area. I, I just think it's hysterical that in our financial lives, we have a portfolio that addresses that uncertainty. Hmm. We bake that into the design of the portfolio. Yet most of our business strategies, what we talk about, we talk about we got to focus on one strategy. <laughs> well, think about that for a second. Based on everything we've talked about over the last 45 minutes or so, the likelihood that that scenario is going to turn out the way you think it is is very, very low. It is highly unlikely you will get exactly what you want and things will line up the way you want them to. And instead of trying to pivot quickly and change along the way, might it be better to think about a strategy portfolio rather than a strategy? And that's all about what scenario planning and strategy planning should be about is how do you have, how do you balance risk, investment, and return? And plan for multiple possible futures. If there's anything that, that studying history has told me is it didn't need to turn out that way. It just did. And we, it, we don't want to learn the lesson that history is linear because the future's not. Hmm. Yeah. And there, there are so many sliding door moments, aren't there? <laughs> Use another there's just little reference. things. <laughs> yeah. Little things that could have happened differently. And, uh, you know, you know, what if leave Harvey Oswald missed hmm. uh, John Kennedy? What if he missed? What would happen then? And how different would things be? And there are a lot of counterfactual historians try to poke at that. That was one of uh, Stephen King's hmm. books, uh, 1123-63. Am I getting that? I probably get the title wrong. But the whole idea was to try to go change that event and make Har Har Lee Harvey Oswald miss and what would happen later. And basically the, the theme of the book was, well, the timeline in history would disintegrate and fall apart and it would be just this terrible thing. Sure, that's one possible future, mm. but there are infinite other ones. That's right. And we can, it doesn't all have to be bad. It doesn't all have to be good. You just got to plan because no one can tell the future. So plan for multiples. Yeah. All right. Well, this is fascinating, um, but I, don't want to take away from people's experience of reading the book because it is a really fascinating read. If you have a bit of an interest in history, I certainly recommend you read Jason's book, Marketer-in-Chief. And if you're into business, as most of the listeners would be, I recommend you read it as well because there's lots of lessons there to be drawn. So I think that's a good point now, though, to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. And it's the same five questions I ask of each guest. The idea is that you give us some more inspirational tips to get our listener to do something awesome today. That sounds good. I'm ready. All right. What's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? Be curious. Yeah. Be curious without exception. Hmm. I was expecting that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would be. Yeah. All right. What's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? I have gotten out and exposed myself to new experiences, forced myself into situations where I am uncomfortable and where it's where I've got that little kind of queasy feeling like I don't feel right. I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like this is a good idea. 
I, within reason, uh, I go and do it anyway. And that's when you tend to have those transformative moments. Uh, you know, get up on stage, try your hand at a little comedy, go to a dinosaur dig and try to dig things out of the ground with people. Uh, just all kinds of different experiences. You don't expose yourself to that stuff. Uh, your your world will be limited. Hmm. Yeah, that that's um, a really good good point. And and you raised something there that I think because I was listening to somebody and I can't remember who it was now or reading something that talking about this idea of get out of your comfort zone being rubbish uh, because I mean we all gravitate to our comfort zone obviously but they were they were pointing out that it's more about stretching the boundaries of that comfort zone and one of the things you mentioned there as an example was going to a dinosaur dig now to me that's that's going out of your comfort zone without actually being really uncomfortable it's just oh this is really cool i've never done this before what do i need to watch out for and of course you probably rattlesnakes get- <laughs> okay. Well, that's out of the comfort zone, yeah. Um, yeah, that's very out of the comfort zone. I will promise you that. <laughs> so, don't put your hand down down holes before looking inside some way. <laughs> yeah, there's a way you have to walk to the bathroom. There's a, and the bathroom is over that ridge. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. But anyway, the the point is that there are things that you can do which don't necessarily involve perhaps jumping out of an aircraft if you're um if you're afraid of heights so it doesn't have to be that extreme extend the comfort zone uh, to experience new things and then connect some dots back to um, ideas in the way you were describing earlier well one one other example that i would give is i actually challenge that a little bit and i think that people need to yeah stretching the bounds of what your comfort zone is is a great start uh, but once you're ready, you got to jump into the other side of the pool here and there. And I, for instance, people think, oh, I probably read a lot of nonfiction. I might read a lot of science fiction, uh, things like that, and kind of the, the geeky sort of things that you would think an innovator might read. I also read romance novels. Hmm. Uh, you know why? Because I learned that they are some of the best storytellers yeah. uh, ever. They're very, very good at it. And there's such a subculture around that that I did not know existed until I dove in and started reading. Hmm. And yeah, that's way out of my comfort zone. I will promise you that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Great example. Okay. uh, What's a favorite resource that you use most often? Oh, boy. Uh, I think uh, the underused resources that I use all the time are the information that our governments publish for our benefit. I think it's just, it's crazy. In the United States, the government puts out reams and gigabytes of information every day. Uh, U.S. Census Bureau talks about demographics, trends, employment trends. You know, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has just loads of information out there. And when I see innovators and you know, people in leaders saying, well, you know, they're kind of making guesses like, you know, there's a website where you can just look that up. You know, there's so much of that information out there that I think people just don't know it exists. And I suspect that in the European Union, in Oz, in 
uh, you know, other areas of the world, there's tons of information at your fingertips that you just have to go look for and you have to go find. Hmm. Yeah, and with the internet, of course, it's very easy to get it. So e it's, it's so much easier. Go anyway. Yeah. Right. You know, you don't have to go and get a big book off a shelf and look up a table and you know do it all by hand. You can download the uh, the U.S. Census Bureau data directly and do your own statistical analysis on it. It's free. It's we as taxpayers we foot the bill. You might as well get something out of it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh... Yeah, great recommendation. Uh, one note we haven't heard before. Well, I th I think uh, I don't know what the situation is like in other countries, but I know, for instance, the Imperial War Museum in Great Britain is fantastic, huge resource. Uh, you can get pretty much anything that relates to the war. It's a lot of it's digitized, and you can find it in a huge database. Just fantastic. As I'm doing research for an upcoming book. Uh, it's all there. It's just, it's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, historian's paradise, but also... Um, it is, yeah. Innovator's paradise in some ways. Exactly. All right, what's the best way to keep a client on track? Communication. <laughs> just good. And I know you've probably heard that before, and there, people are kind of rolling their eyes at this point, but I feel like when I say communication, I think people think that that means giving them status updates and being clear and upfront. And that's a ticket to the game. You have to be doing that. When I say communication, it's 80% listening. Hmm. You know, what are they saying? What, what's that old story that there's a conversation happening, there's a conversation not being said, there's a subtext to the conversation, there's a subtext to the conversation not being said, and there's a conversation that they don't know they should be having. There's just, it, you don't get that unless you're listening carefully for the verbals, the nonverbals. Because if you don't know, for instance, that, hey, this particular client, his dad has COVID, he's worried about that, and that's just on his mind right now, and that's why he's not getting this deliverable finished. Well, if you don't know that and you're pushing, there, when when you push in a situation without understanding that, you're going to get pushed back. Hmm. And if you don't know why that's happening, you may solve the wrong problem. And you think, well, there's I, I need to be providing more information to this guy. Well, maybe not. Maybe you just need to listen more. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And certainly that there's an argument that says, Personal and business don't mix, but you know, in that that's a classic example of that person is distracted because they've got things on their mind that are clearly important to them. And if you understand what's what they're going through right now, then maybe that helps you. you know. And also bringing empathy to the table and saying, "Well, you know, I'm sorry to hear that, but you know, is there something I can do to kind of take up some of the?" Some of the load or ease the load some of the load from a business sense right now i'm reminded of an example that some of your listeners might remember uh the movie the godfather the first one hmm. uh michael corleone uh you know the one of the famous lines from the from the from the movie that people remember is it's it's just business yeah and but that's not that's not the whole line the next part that michael corleone says to tom hagan 
is he says, it's personal. All business is personal. Hmm. They might tell you it's not, but it's personal and you take it personally. And I think that's just something that is why we remember that character and why we remember that movie is because he's speaking kind of a deep human truth that there is no separation between business and personal life. It's all personal. And it's just a matter of that separation is just an illusion. And just understanding how to get to know the people behind that will make you more successful. Hmm. Yeah, really great uh, example and great message. All right, now finally, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Listen. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. Uh, and I know you're like, ah, I, you, you told me that. That was the first answer to the question. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. Uh, I think most innovators put too much pressure on themselves to differentiate. And here's what I mean by that. That's going to be an odd way to phrase that. But let me explain. If you are empathetic and you understand your audience well and you're curious about them and you draw them out, they will tell you what they need. They will tell you what will be differentiating for them and you just give them that. You know, there, I, I think a lot of innovators feel this immense pressure to be different than the competition. And that's a real thing. It's an important thing. But how do you figure that out? How do you differentiate? Well, if you listen carefully, your audience will tell you how to differentiate. They'll tell you what, they're, what the problem is that you need to solve. You just need to have the courage and the guts to go listen to them. And frankly, to listen when they tell you something that you may not want to hear mm. or that you may not be expecting. That's what true listening is. And if you do, then differentiation becomes kind of a second order question. Then it's just a matter of, well, how do I satisfy that need? That's a different question. Mm. Uh, but how to differentiate? Your audience will tell you that. You just have to listen to them. Mm. Yeah. The One of the things that brings up in my mind is have it doing some work on yourself, having that self-awareness to be confident and not be looking, oh, well, how can I differentiate? What, what's everybody else doing and how can I be different? But having that confidence in, okay, this is where I'm coming from now. Let's listen to the other people. Let's, let's hear what they say. And as you point out, really pay attention to those things that may not you may not want to hear or you may not expect to hear but again having the confidence to say okay well tell me more about that uh, without judgment mm. exactly there's an old saying i heard that uh, i heard from a, a psychologist that I, I i can't get out of my head uh, is that the the advice that the airlines give you is the same advice you should take yeah. Put your own oxygen mask on before you assist others. You really have to know where you're coming from. You have to have that kind of confidence and self-assurance. True self-assurance is not arrogance. Hmm. True self-assurance gives you the psychological freedom to really listen. Because you know where you're coming from. Now you can finally open up and let someone else talk with you. And then it, it works. It's a, uh, I would recommend Dr. Amit Sood. Uh, from the Mayo Clinic in the United States. Great book, The Mayo Clinic Guide to Happiness, uh, where he talks about a lot of those kind of concepts in detail. One of the best books an innovator and a business person can read. 
to help understand and kind of center themselves so that they can be better leaders, better innovators, better listeners. Hmm. All right. Well, that's a great recommendation. We'll include that in the show notes. Thank you. Okay. Well, thanks for getting us through the buzz, Jason. This has been absolutely fabulous. The whole conversation's been fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you, get a hold of your book, Marketer-in-Chief, and maybe even get in touch and say thanks for what you've shared today? Two ways, really. You can go to marketerinchief.com. You can learn more about the book. You can get links to different platforms where it's available globally. Uh, which is great. Now, the ebook, the, e the paperback, and the audiobook, which are all great options. But if you want to get in touch with me as a, in a business context, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Talk to me about something you heard on this podcast that you agreed with, that you didn't agree with, that you want to argue with me about. That's all great. There aren't that many other Jason Voyoviches on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only one. So you will find me connect with me there. I would be happy to connect with you and have that kind of connection and uh, relationship over time. Wonderful. I'll um, post the links to those two places in the show notes. And certainly if you do reach out to Jason on LinkedIn, make sure you start the conversation. Don't just request to connect. <laughs> That's my favorite no-no on LinkedIn. All right. Um, do you have some parting advice for our listener today as we wrap up, Jason? I'd, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people think about their business lives and storytelling is really separate things. And people love stories. They love watching movies. They love reading books. And they don't think that has a lot to do with their business life and what will make them successful. I say BS to that. Hmm that learn how to be a better storyteller and really understand how stories work. And you'll be a better leader. You'll be a better innovator. Uh, and you'll be happier, too. Okay. So learn how to be a better storyteller. I love it. Yeah. And think about some of the frameworks that Jason mentioned earlier around stories and how they play out. All right. Finally, Jason, who else should I get on this show and why? I would love you to have on the program the, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned Dr. Sood's book mm. on, you know, the Mayo Clinic Guide to Happiness and one of his collaborators at the clinic, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Nancy Chesak, uh, who they do fascinating research on burnout and on how people uh, kind of manage their own, their of their own psychology. What's so critical about that through the pandemic is we need those skills more than any other time right now. Uh, yeah, we're managing our health, kind of our physical health with infectious disease, but we have not thought about managing our emotional health and our social health. And Dr. Sue, Dr. Chesak are experts at that and offer practical, no-nonsense advice, really easy to follow backed by rigorous research it is fantastic one or both of those should be on the show next all right well great we'll reach out to both of them and see if we can arrange a time to chat and bring them on the show so thanks for that recommendation jason and thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us today i've really enjoyed digging into 
the stories in the book a little bit more. I'm enjoying reading it. As I said, I'm I'm up to the chapter on Abraham Lincoln, working through chronologically, and I don't I don't think the book is actually written in complete chronological order, but it's sort of more. Oh, it sure like, is. Okay, it is. Oh, it sure is. Yeah, it is 100% chronological. So you'll get a because you'll get that story arc, and yeah. that part's important in there. There mm. is an innovation arc, and I wanted to follow it. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm really enjoying it, um, so I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. And I have, of course, looked at, I've cheated and gone to the last chapter and seen what you've said about the current <laughs> incumbent and also about his predecessor, which is an, an, a complete, um, an, another story, complete contrast, of course, um, and and some of the others that, that I know from my own childhood growing up and, and following and taking interest in the news at the time. So I'm looking forward to reading through the rest of it and, and filling in the gaps and maybe learning a little bit more now that we've had this conversation. So thanks again. Yeah. All the best for the future and let's keep in touch. Let's do that. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that thoroughly fascinating and really insightful conversation with Jason and took something away from his episode. I think the concept of looking at the history of US presidents and the lessons as they apply to business is particularly fascinating. I invite you to take one of the stories that Jason shared today about how the American presidents shaped history and draw out lessons that you can apply in your own business, whether that be in scenario planning or in the stories you use in your marketing. Of course, all in the service of your customer. Maybe it'll be the story of James Madison or the story of Gary Powers and Dwight Eisenhower. Imagine if you could take lessons from any historical person or situation already knowing the outcome of that particular situation and applying those lessons in your business. Reflect on that before you listen to any other episodes and make some notes with action points. Jason's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Jason Voyevich. That is J-A-S-O-N-V-O-I-O-V-I-C-H. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Jason Voyevich. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Jason, as well as links to the Marketer-in-Chief website, his social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in today's conversation. If you've listened this far into the show, I've got a challenge for you. If you love this conversation, and why... Wouldn't you love this conversation? And you think it'd be useful to one other person? Be brave enough to share this conversation with that one other person. And my guess is, in the nearly 500 other episodes that we've published until right now, there's at least one there that is equally as valuable to you as this episode. So either pick your favorite number or take a 30-second glance through the past episodes, and between now and the next episode, listen to one more, and then write me a note on LinkedIn 
about which episode you picked and why and what your biggest takeaway was. Jason suggested that we have a conversation with Dr. Nancy Chesak and Dr. Amit Sood, author of The Mayo Guide to Happiness on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So Nancy and Amit, keep an eye on your inboxes for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Jason Voyevich. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode so that we can get to know you and why you listen. Also, it will help us make the podcast even better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz to pick your preferred platform. And you can follow the show by going to followthepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain into how we put together this show, go to innovabuzz.co forward slash flywheel, where you can access a free gift my team and I made for you, a short audio program that walks you through the entire InnovaBuzz flywheel. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.